Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. Today, we're speaking to Catherine Howarth, Chief Executive of ShareAction, who for over a decade have been leading the movement for responsible investment. Think about the principles for responsible investment, which have done an incredible job in popularising responsible investment. But they were crafted and written, those principles, 15 years ago, and they feel quite dated, honestly, because they're very much about... Will, as an investor, take account of environmental, social and governance factors to the extent that it makes us more money, basically. And that's what it's about. Whereas I think the world is longing for and needs a more ambitious impact-centric approach because the companies in my portfolio are making choices every day that have impacts on the world around me. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. And welcome, Ryan. How are things? I'm great. Actually, the end is in sight for lockdown, which is very exciting. Although I feel we've been here before and I've been this excited before, but let's let's see what happens. What about you? You'll be joining us back in the UK soon, right? Yes, indeed. Just a week or so more and then uh, back over the pond. And we can finally record podcasts in the morning UK time and it's not 4am for you in New York. Yes, thank God. And thank God these have only been audio and not videos. (laughs) Well, for our last episode where Helen is in New York and I'm here in London, we have Catherine Howarth, Chief Executive of ShareAction, a charity that promotes responsible investment and, among many other things, coordinates individuals and groups to use shareholder activism to engage with corporates and investors to achieve change, or shareholder action, if you like, as their name suggests. They, like us at the Institute, believe the financial sector can be a force for good and advocate for more open decisions with longer-term impacts factored in. Initially, when they launched as Fair Pensions back in 2005, ShareAction first made its name ranking UK pension funds on their level of responsible investment. And since becoming ShareAction in 2013 has continued to grow. One of their key aims is to democratise the financial system by encouraging individuals to be more involved in how their investments are managed, including using their voting rights. Catherine joined as chief executive in 2008, and through their work with investors, asset managers, pension funds, and policymakers, they've helped push some of the UK's largest companies into making big environmentally and socially positive commitments, which Catherine will be telling us all about shortly. So let's get her on. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's lovely to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Kids back at school. Kids back at school. Um, (laughs) But they're back for tea as we have this conversation. But yes, uh, that's transformational and has put me in a great mood all all week. And them. (laughs) I bet, I bet. Um, So before, we've got so much to talk about uh, around Share Action and the amazing work you're doing today. But can we just start by talking about you for a bit? Um, You've been championing for climate responsible and socially responsible investments for over a decade now, well before it became part of sort of the public debate. Um, How did you become engaged in this fight? Well, it goes back about 20 years. Um, When I was a community activist in the East End of London, I was working on a brand new thing called the Living Wage Campaign, which started in the East End of London. Um, in 2000 and we launched it publicly in 2001 and we bought some shares in HSBC and Barclays they were the first shares I bought I bought five shares in HSBC it's been a brilliant investment career-changing investment because um 
First Barclays and then HSBC became the first FTSE 100 companies to commit to being living wage employers on the Canary Wharf estate in their in their big new glassy towers. And then I thought, gosh, this this shareholder up business is, is pretty cool. You can get some stuff done. So I thought I'll stand for election to the board of my pension scheme, um, which was set up in the 1940s and was very democratically organized and still allowed ordinary members to just put themselves forward and up for election. And I got elected. And looking back on it, I kind of wrote in my little blurb, I'm a, I'm, I don't know anything about finance, but I'm really interested in um, responsible um, shareholding and, and, and ethical investment. And the members of the scheme voted me in. So then I had a baptism of fire on the board of this um, pension scheme. My first, my third trustee meeting, Lehman Brothers fell in the middle of the meeting, the bottom oh. fell out of our portfolio. Um, so that was quite an eye opener um, and uh, interesting introduction to fiduciary responsibility. And then, and then I heard about this tiny, tiny organization and applied for the job. Um, and I've been at Share Action 12 years now. Um, and I still really, really love it. Well, then let's talk about the love of your life, Share Action, or one of the loves of your life. <laughs> I have a fantastic husband as well. That would be quite clear. <laughs> and can you sort of talk to us a bit about the ambition and, and its theory of change? It's, it's so fascinating. Share Action is all about trying to make responsible investment both mainstream, which is really happening, but also far more ambitious. And, you know, if you think about the principles for responsible investment, which have done an incredible job in popularizing responsible investment, but they were crafted and written those principles 15 years ago. And they feel quite dated, honestly, because they're very much about quite an inward looking thinking, which says, we'll, as an investor, take account of environmental, social and governance factors to the extent that it makes us more money, basically. And that's what it's about. Whereas I think the world is longing for and needs a more ambitious impact centric approach to responsible investment, which says as a responsible investor, I will take responsibility and be held accountable for the impact that I have on the environment, on people, on communities, because the companies in my portfolio are making choices every day that have impacts on the world around me. Um, and by the way, I think that's very, very relevant and completely consistent with fiduciary obligation of pension funds, because as a pension saver, I want to make money, but I don't want to make money in a way that destroys the environment or operates in a way that that drives deeper inequalities in our society. That's not actually an outcome that I that I want to see happen in my pension savings. So I, I I think this more ambitious approach is perfectly consistent in with acting in the best interests of millions of working people who every month put money in the pension system in good faith. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you go about implementing this big ambition and this theory of change? Then, what what are the practical actions that you that you take up? So, a big part of it, which is obviously reflected in our name, is shareholder activism. And you know, there's a lot of talk about stakeholder capitalism, but the truth of the matter is, for now, in law, shareholders are number one. And climate is obviously a massive focus for us. I'm sure we'll come on to that. But we're really interested in companies that operate in ways that enhance people's health or don't undermine their health, companies that treat their workforce decently. All of these things can happen and happen in a faster way if um, big investors get behind it and give boards a mandate. So we work with investors, but we're also a watchdog on the investment industry itself. And then we have parts of our work which are about 
the policy framework for investors. We have a dialogue with financial supervisors and financial policymakers to ensure that we have a system which drives the right kinds of behaviours and indeed insists on the right kinds of behaviours. Lots of really important work there. On the shareholder activism point then, you've had lots of success stories over the years. Most recently, for example, of course, with climate change resolutions being filed by shareholders at HSBC and Tesco. Um, You mentioned HSBC was your first ever share purchase. I'm unsure if you are still a shareholder and thus if you were part of the resolution. Yeah, I still got those five shares and I was one of the 130 or so people that filed the resolution at HSBC. Fantastic. they, they really are listening and they're listening partly because, you know, the, the zeitgeist is there now. You know, we're in the year of COP26 and um, and every bank is under pressure and it, rightly so to step up and make serious commitments to align their financing decisions with the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. Absolutely. Are there any particular success stories you're most proud of or that were most memorable? Well, I'm. I mean, I'm completely thrilled with the recent um, win that we've had at Tesco. Um, just because the resolution which asked Tesco to set a stretching target for the proportion of its food sales that are made up of products that are healthy, as defined by the government, you know, there's never been a shareholder resolution on health in the UK. So that was really pioneering. And then. It's just the right moment for it because those stores have such influence over our choices and health. So I'm, I'm really excited by that one. Um, and I hope that it paves the way for much more uh, shareholder engagement with health as a theme. I mean, it's wonderful how the investment community has stepped up on climate. Really exciting, totally necessary. Um, but it's not the only big issue where there's a systemic risk. And we've seen that with with the pandemic that we, we really need to be managing not just our environment, but our communities as well and making sure that they're resilient. Well, moving over to specifically your work in the asset management world, then you mentioned earlier that you like to hold the investment management world to account. And last year, you released the Point of No Returns reports that ranked 75 of the world's leading asset managers approaches to responsible investment. And the results, well, they weren't great, shall we say. All six of the world's six largest asset managers scoring D or E in that ranking, with AAA, of course, being the potential top rating. It's a bit of a wake-up call to us, given the shift in rhetoric that we've seen coming out of these companies in the last few years. And you know, we'll come to the methodology in a second, but were you shocked by the results of that? Uh, honestly, not very. Um, but I think that kind of transparency is really powerful. And the thing that is not yet so much in the public arena is that we've had a fantastic set of conversations with over 50 of the 75 asset managers that we ranked and um, talking with them about the recommendations we made in a tailored way for each firm based on you know their strong points, their weaker points and so on. You know, no one likes to be at the bottom of a public ranking. It's embarrassing with clients. There's definitely been some really helpful questions from clients, particularly, you know, pension funds, but also um, investment consulting companies that are helping pension funds choose managers. So it's been doing its job in the sense that it creates transparency and visibility. It motivates change and it demonstrates what's possible. Well, good to see it's already having a practical impact. And also, you know, I must stress that it wasn't all negative. There were pockets of leadership, as, as you guys put it. Um, what is it that sets them apart from the others in what they're doing? So, uh, well, what we were really looking for 
was asset managers that focused on companies, environmental, social performance, and not just the kind of the financial risk management side of ESG. Um, so to go back to my opening remarks about Share Action's ambition to try and drive impact thinking into the mainstream of responsible investment, you know, that's what we were looking for. And it's still very much what we think is the hallmark of best practice. The other things that distinguished the high scorers was, you know, just the sheer detail of their policies in different areas of ESG. So typically, um, but even the best, you know, still had quite weak policies on things like biodiversity and human rights. They tended to have the best performance, you know, pretty strong policies on climate change. And then it's about a willingness to act, you know, not to just stand on the sidelines, to actually be willing to use your voting power as an asset manager to send signals to corporate boards, um, potentially to be uh, co-filers of resolution. So it's that willingness to act and to be just to sort of put your head a bit above the parapet as an asset manager that quite rightly uh, earns you the right to be called a leader. So not all asset managers are using their votes. I was quite shocked when I looked at the stats that some of the most vocal fund managers um, are the ones using their votes least on climate resolutions. So can you share with us why it's so important for the large managers to step up and start using their votes to influence company behaviour? Yeah. You know, we, we're not saying that um, asset managers should just, you know, be voting against management all the time willy nilly. There has to be a good reason. But if you never send the signal um, into the corporate community that you're willing to be tough um, when tough is required, following, let's say, a long period of dialogue and engagement with the corporate board, but they're not moving. Well, you know, you, you've, you've got to signal that that um, isn't OK. And the positive thing is that there's been some kind of rapid shifts in some of the managers. So I would hold up JP Morgan, who, you know, until two or three years ago was pretty timid, not doing but have really stepped up. And I'm, you know, impressed by the fact that they are willing to use the vote. And they've, they proved that in 2020 proxy season. I'm so, sure they're going to do the same again. Now, BlackRock's the really interesting one because... Obviously, they've had so much profile with things like Larry Fink's letters to CEOs of investee companies, but there's been a ginormous say-do gap at uh, BlackRock. But I think 2021, we're going to see them stepping up quite a bit. They're, I know that they've certainly pledged to, and then I know that a whole bunch of clients, um, including some large institutional investor clients, are pushing them quite hard on this. And, you know, if BlackRock really steps up, that's potentially a game changer. They've got such an ability to achieve positive things by using their votes in a more um, determined way. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic, but we will watch with interest and see what happens. The second piece you mentioned there was oversight and policy. And, um, you know, we don't want to go into every single policy that needs to be in place. But where do you feel are the biggest holes when it comes to best practices and internal policies for asset managers? Look, I think you want asset managers and fund managers, portfolio managers and their, and their ESG analysts um, to be taking something of a, of a stock by stock approach, you know, and to be really having a good analysis of each company. But at the same time, kind of broad brush policies, let's say for um, the sectors that are highly exposed to biodiversity related impacts and risks, the agricultural sector, um, you know, elements of the fashion sector that fund managers have given the careful thought to those kind of sectoral based risks and they've developed um, an approach to those that's embedded in a policy 
that that just gives you quite a, a lot of confidence. But it would still be the case that you would expect them to have company by company analysis. And then the final one you mentioned was products and strategies. Can you just sort of share with us why that's so important um, as, as a sort of a metric for seeing the journey that asset managers are on? Well, I, yeah, I just think obviously a huge amount of, of, of marketing in this industry goes into kind of product development and offering people products that they want. And there is a massive consumer demand now for sustainability products. So we would hope and expect that um, that fund managers are developing really impressive um, new products and strategies that meet that need, but also that they're not just neglecting the kind of core um let's say equities policies and 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 products as well that it's actually that they apply strong ri policies across the whole house so you mentioned there are obviously new products that could be developed and what do you think is currently stopping these new products being developed or this say do gap you mentioned earlier what do you think is holding people back what's the biggest blocker well i think part of it is apathy in in the client community um so ultimately fund managers will respond to client demand there's a lot of that developing but when you when you look across the pension fund sector for example there's still relatively small numbers of pension funds that have have adopted really world class um climate products and strategies um so there's this kind of chicken and egg thing slightly because the asset owners complain that the products aren't there and the asset managers complain that there's no demand for them. So that can get maddening. Um, but uh, we're getting there. Um, and I think the the other kind of blockers can be kind of incentives at the firm level. I think governance is really key. It's very important that both um, at asset owner level and asset manager level, there's an aspect expertise on the boards of these organisations that's really driving the change that's needed. Got to come from the top. Yeah, education is definitely needed. And we know that chicken and egg situation all too well in the Institute in the work that we're also doing. Um, in the last few weeks, though, you've launched a leading practices report. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that and what leading practices you're recommending are? So, yeah, I'm thrilled with this publication because um, obviously it builds on and is in a way it's part of the whole series with the asset manager ranking. But um, there was no doubt that there was there were, as, as you to use the phrase that you quoted earlier, these pockets of excellence. Um, and whilst we didn't see any asset manager be completely top scoring in all areas, we saw a wide range of asset managers doing some really interesting things. So we thought that it would be useful um, to pull that together. It's, it's just good to be able to profile that there's some really innovative thinking and there's some really bold practice. And it's not all doom and gloom, but um, there's a, you know, a taken on aggregate as the industry as a whole, there's an awfully long way to go. Yeah, it's great to be able to say it's not all doom and gloom and really, you know, hold up these good examples and then other people can aspire to it. it it's fantastic that you're putting it out there. It's so fascinating to me as well, the appeal of league tables. We we just hosted a um, thinking of financial institutions on um, how we could move the desk up to review forward. So it's specifically sort of around nature. And the request that came out of that group was that there was a development of league tables around best practice and policies for biodiversity and finance. And so I've been scouring the globe to see if this actually exists already. And it does, you know, there are some like fair finance does it in certain countries, but there isn't sort of a global, here's a best league table for biodiversity and its various sort of subsectors around policies. But actually there's a real desire among 
financial institutions to have these league tables because they want to know what the best practices are and they want to sort of be able to go to their senior execs and say, hey, look, we're not not doing so well on this. Let's, you know, maybe this is a bit of a bargaining tool um, internally to sort of move things along. I don't know what you think about that. Definitely. My goodness. Some of the feedback we've had discreetly from some of the lower performing fund managers, people that work in sustainability roles and responsible investment roles who privately say to us thank you so much it's completely helped focus the minds of um you know the c-suite in my firm that we didn't do terribly well in this and we know we didn't deserve to so you know it's it's just really making um people think about you know what are the resources we need to pick up the pace and compete with the best yeah another really important topic to us here is all about just transition and making sure that Every discussion around climate and environment has this social aspect to it. What sort of work are you guys doing in that space to ensure that that social angle is added to every topic of conversation when climate's in there? Yeah, it's it's so critical. Um, we, we haven't got any kind of major program on just transition. We're highly supportive um, and we're feeding in, for example, to the work that Nick Robbins is doing at the London School of Economics, which is which is tremendous. I think that the just transition needs to consider not just the whole question of um, communities where jobs might be lost, but just to really think about the health impacts on low income communities of things like um, uh, air pollution and incinerators. And there's just such a strong social dimension to environmental damage. And And, you know, I've seen some fascinating research recently showing that in the US, uh, low-income communities typically have a lot less trees in their neighbourhood and they're much more vulnerable to climate impacts. Um, so it's just, once you start digging into that topic, you realise it's it's really very rich and um, that we've, we're making a big mistake if we don't have a social lens on everything we do in the climate space. And especially as we're sort of talking about Build Back Better, I was reading um, Emma Howard Boyd's piece in The Independent where she sort of makes this point, you know, we're all piling into Build Back Better, which will be infrastructure. Um, It may well be green infrastructure, fantastic, but it's actually going to be a lot of male-oriented jobs as well. So there's so many things to consider, as you sort of say, you know, when you start thinking about greening, you can't ignore all of the social aspects too. Yeah, we're not going to get the kind of climate outcomes we want without taking gender diversity and in fact all diversity really seriously and I would really say by the way that I see that in the asset management sector um it's a sector with a with a diversity problem um there are more funds in the UK managed by someone called Dave than there are any funds managed by a woman there are only 45 funds in the UK where we're headed up by female fund manager, but the 68 Dave run funds, um, wow. which is pretty crazy. Um, but you know what? As soon as you get more diversity in the asset management industry, you start getting m- more serious and um, effective impact and ESG thinking. Um, in, in, in my experience, it's a bit anecdotal, but I just think it's not surprising really that um, you need a kind of breadth of perspective and it's not just about gender and and race and so on. It's kind of about, we need people in the investment industry that are, you know, have come out of scientific backgrounds, have have come out of social science backgrounds, who've just got a, a bring a diversity of perspectives to the task of fund management, which fundamentally is a discipline where you've really got to get under the skin of companies and really understand what's going on to be a good 
you know, stock picker for a start, but also in order to do good engagement with with companies and to be an effective steward, well, you you, you just really need um, a, a blended team of people to pull that off well. I would argue almost, and you know, I think we're getting slightly philosophical here, but it's it's all aspects of life. It's not just finance. It's everywhere you go, politics, finance. You need diverse views, diverse lived experiences, or you're always going to get the same decisions being made. You need people from different backgrounds who have had different you know, life chances to be coming into these industries. You're so right, Ryan. You're so, so right. It's just, I think it's especially important in finance because finance is like like command and control of the capitalist economy, isn't it? <laughs> that's where the capital allocation decisions get made. If we don't get that diversity fixed in that sector, it kind of has a negative ripple out effect. But you're absolutely right that in government, in business, and by the way, in the NGO sector, which has a diversity problem too, uh, we we need to get serious about um, a, a range of perspectives and lived experiences, as you say. Well, this is a fantastic tangent we've gone off on, and I'm loving it. Um, I'm conscious of your time, and uh, we want to sort of hear about sort of next next steps. So, um, I mean, anything you're engaged in right now or work you're doing that you want to share with us? So, you know, what can we expect from Share Action next? Yeah, well, we're we're, we're obviously excited about um, AGM season 2021. I think it's going to be um, a really interesting season in watching how the big fund managers use their votes this season, um, particularly around the climate emergency. And as we head into COP, who's willing to you know walk the walk? Um, and we will be encouraging institutional investors to attend annual general meetings. They're going to be held online, but that course makes it you know, easier to attend. Um, And so we'd love to see this year more questions of boards from institutional investors. I think the AGM is a completely underused tool. Um, It's it's a bit of a 19th century relic and none of the powerful big institutional investors are present. Um, There's a few people there for the free bickies and, um, you know, chat with the informal chat with the director. And by the way, we find them wonderful opportunities to build relationships with with board members. But it's a waste because um, they're actually brilliant opportunities to connect with the non-executive directors who are quite inaccessible to shareholders other than at the AGM. And then I think, you know, it'll just be so interesting to see how the pandemic influences the ESG agenda. Um, I, to be honest, feel quite anxious about the financial future. I think there's just so much buildup of debt and asset prices have have risen so much. I just feel like I, I do feel a little queasy. And one of the things that's on my mind is if we do have another, God forbid, really messy moment in capital markets, um, what can we do to ensure that the sustainability agenda doesn't, you know, fall off track and um, that that it's really seen as central to, to building back better and, and 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 doesn't stop being a priority? 2021, though, if it wasn't for COVID, we would only be talking about COP. And I often feel we still, even then, are only ever talking about COP. In the run up to COP, we're just asking all our guests, what is the one thing you want to see come out of the summit? So is there one particular policy, be it UK or a global policy that you would love to see? Gosh, you know, it's kind of like it feels like a specialist sport being like heavily involved. And I feel like what we're trying to do is make sure that whatever the outcome at COP, we're going to be keeping um, investors, banks and companies feet to the fire because of course, we need a great policy outcome. 
and governments to step up and for, for us to end up with, you know, a much, much tighter commitments. But whether we get that or not, we need the world's biggest companies and the world's biggest financiers to be serious about aligning portfolios and business models with the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. I think we got the guide the guidelines we needed in Paris five years ago. And this is about ratcheting up and it's critical and there is lots of detail that really matters. But um I kind of want us to be hedging for any outcome and to make sure that we keep the finance um, and corporate community on track regardless. For sure. Well, bringing it back down from the government level, then back to the people. For those listening at home, what can they do to get involved with the work Share Action's doing or what can they do with their investments when they, after they listen to this podcast, they can go away and go and do this? Oh, yes. Lovely question. Thank you, Ryan. Well, I mean, there's such a lot of wonderful things on our website about all the different campaigns we're doing, whether it's on um, climate, biodiversity, health, um, human and labour rights. But there's also a fantastic section for people who belong to a pension scheme, which most of us do. What can you do to make sure that your pension fund is not asleep at the wheel when it comes to the climate emergency? That, by the way, is very much in your best financial interest, but it's also um, a route to ensuring that we don't um, get catastrophic climate change. So there's there's so much that you can do in your workplace. You can make sure that you're nudging your employer to ensure there's good climate safe options um, uh, available for you to put your pension money in every month. Um, and yeah, just be part of our movement. We offer wonderful training. So if you want to ask a company a question at their annual general meeting, we'll train you up and help you to get in front of the directors to ask your question. Uh, whatever you're passionate about that affects life in the corporate community, we love empowering people to um, go out and have their say and um, help to make a difference. I love this phrase you have of becoming an AGM activist. I feel like maybe we can rally up this year, um, AGM activists. <laughs> so thank you so, so much for joining us, Catherine. It's been such a pleasure and wish you all the best of luck with all the work you're doing and really look forward to, to following you and the work of Share Action. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Helen. I feel just the same about um, the Green Finance Institute, an incredibly um, important new player in the ecosystem doing just brilliant work. And it's lovely that Share Action and um, GFI are good comrades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. So really inspiring conversation with Catherine. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, great. And look, I really enjoyed the discussion in the middle about diversity. You know, given the events of the last year, it's so important that we're having that kind of conversation. And I think everyone in all walks of life should be having that kind of conversation. But um, back to the wider topic on empowering individuals, you know, it's absolutely key. And it's it's really great to see the work Share Action are doing. Um, are you an AGM activist, Helen? <laughs> I owned any shares I'm sure I would be um, <laughs> but uh, no I, I look I think it's a fantastic idea and and really really important <laughs> well Helen if you do happen to buy any shares anytime soon and if any of our listeners are shareholders currently you now know that there are many ways to make your voice heard and if you want the companies you're invested in to be making more environmentally and socially positive decisions then do look up Share Actions training and get involved and make your voice heard. Absolutely. And it would be so good to see 
all of the largest fund managers out there using their votes for positive change too. Yes, it would. <laughs> here, here. Um, but who's our next guest, Ryan? Yeah, so up next, we have Bevis Watts, the CEO of Triodos Bank UK, which I'm really looking forward to. And we'll be talking all about sustainable banking. Brilliant. I can't wait. Triodos is uh, one of my favorite banks, if I'm allowed to say that. So I'm really looking forward to coming back to the UK <laughs> and, and starting with a podcast with them. <laughs> and we can't wait to have you back. But until then, to all the listeners at home, thank you once again for joining us for this episode of Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.